Thank you, TL. Um, so it was a really generous invitation. I'm glad to speak to this department and this community. Um, the, one of the things I'd like to do, I've been sort of pulled into a, a conversation that you could broadly call the politics of algorithms. I think there are a lot of people uh, in my field and a number of fields trying to think about this issue. So, um, Chris? So uh, I wanted to, to sort of set up the kind of things that I've been thinking about and then uh, move through sort of one slice of that. Uh, you will probably notice that the talk uh, is sort of punch bowl shaped. Uh, so there is a, a foundation that I might argue is sturdier, and then after that there's going to be a big, wide open thing sitting on top of it uh, that I have not yet filled. So uh, you can offer or berate me with suggestions of things I absolutely should have read or thought about, um, and I'm trying to fill that space as well as possible. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to comments and discussions. Uh, okay, so um, I've been interested recently in the way that algorithms, information algorithms, are sort of nestling in to the practices of public life. This article uh, showed up on my Twitter feed uh, today, um, and it's sort of it's indicative. I'm not going to talk about this issue in particular, but indicative of these questions about um, how it is that systems like Facebook, systems like Twitter, systems like search engines, um, broad mechanisms by which we encounter information that are organized in part by their um, algorithm, may be shaping uh, the sort of contours of public discourse. What we tend to encounter, what looks like it's being encountered by lots of people, what we take to be important, uh, what kind of answers we get to the questions that we ask. Um, and I think this is part of a sort of wide-ranging set of questions, both around algorithms and then probably much bro more broadly about computation and automation. Um, as we commit to computational, networked, large-scale systems um, that depend crucially on the collection and circulation of data and therefore depend on algorithms to help us sort and uh, manage and identify the information we need. Um, there are a number of people, like I said, thinking in, in a number of fields about what it means that these algorithms are sort of mediating our interaction with institutions, with knowledge, with communities of, of people, friends, strangers, um, locations. Uh, and how we're going to ask uh, astute sociological questions about them. There are particular issues about how to think about algorithms, like uh, do we need expertise in algorithms to look at them carefully? Um, do we have access to them if they're running under a system that is private and closed to us? For me, in particular, the question I'm interested in is this question of um, how we encounter um, public discussion. So if the, uh, the spaces in which we debate, the spaces in which we learn, the spaces in which we consider are increasingly in online spaces, especially large-scale platforms like Facebook and Twitter, um, how is it that their algorithms and their use of algorithms and their sort of approach to algorithms are in powerful ways mediating um, uh, what we encounter and what we know? Uh, and we can think about a couple things. So we can think about search. Uh, we can think about social networks and the algorithms they use. We can think about recommendation systems. So if I read something or if I encounter something, what am I offered up next? And each of these sort of um, channel the kinds of content and the kinds of people that I encounter. Um, if we want to put all those together, we can think about the way that judgments, judgments about what's relevant to us, judgments about what we're looking for, judgments about who we would like to encounter, um, are being made in part by algorithms, right, and the people designing those algorithms. Okay, so um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot, uh, some of this discussion is marked by a kind of 
uh, a sense of novelty, right? This is a new question. These are new tools. This is a constant problem for thinking about um, media discussions in the contemporary world where the new thing seems to displace, right? Like nothing happened before Web 2.0. And what I'd like to think about is how is this question, the mediation of algorithms in public knowledge and public discourse, um, connected to a whole series of uh, practices and concerns that predate algorithms and predate social media and yet raised similar kinds of issues. So how do we make a sort of historical continuum? What can we learn from thinking of it as the latest instantiation of a long-standing, maybe century-long question about the mechanisms by which we get information and find ourselves participating in publics? So there's a lot of ways into that question. I want to sort of start with one, um, one that I think is kind of... Uh, maybe seems like a small way in to this. So for those of you who use Twitter, uh, and only those of you who like to use Twitter on the website as opposed to various um, mobile mechanisms, uh, one aspect of Twitter is to offer what's called Twitter Trends. It was down there in the corner, easy to ignore. I've blown it up for you so you can see what's going on. This was uh, what was in my trends list about two days ago when I was doing some of these slides. Um, it, for those who don't know, and I'm sorry if, uh, if you're active Twitter users, but if you don't use Twitter, you're, uh, it's not a common tool for you. Uh, it's basically picking up terms, usually hashtag terms, that are um, surging in use during that period. You can set it to be uh, global, you can set it to your nation, you can set it to your city, so we're looking at Boston trends right now. If you click change, it gives you a set of options about locations, so you can seek out this information. Some measure of attention activity, uh, interest. One of the things I want to talk about is, uh, are, is this legible as something? What do we take it to mean? I think there's uh, something really interesting about calling it trends, right? Because it's not clear what Twitter's measuring, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but it's not clear what a trend is, right? That's a nice vague term. So it, uh, it leaves us in this kind of vague sense about things that matter. And as you start to specify exactly what mat mattering means, you realize that there's some very sort of rough edges around uh, that topic. So uh, this is a kind of structural element that we're seeing in a lot of social media platforms. I'll start with Twitter as kind of the exemplar, but we'll expand the category a little bit. Um, it's an easy bit of data for platforms to provide, right? So it's at first kind of a reminder that these systems are fundamentally and deeply data systems. And their ability to process an immense amount of data and try to tell us something about it and use that as a mechanism to invite us back into the system or direct us to things we might find relevant uh, are uh, a central and simple part of the mechanisms they've built. Uh, Richard Rogers calls these platforms post-demographics machines, right? So they're built upon and very eager to tell us stuff about us, not in terms of region or class or gender, but about interest and sort of participatory communities. That's what we mean it's by post-demographics. Um, I find it interesting in part because, uh, you know, this is clearly a mechanism to encourage you to stay on the site, right? If we want to think about kind of a financial goal, um, the more time you spend there, the happier you are with the site, the better it is for Twitter. So if this leads you, if you click on, uh, you know, Donald Sterling and it gets you, is it Sterling? Sterling. Uh, and it gets you into discussion, that's what you wanted, then, you know, all the better for Twitter and all the better for you. Um, but it's quite different than other mechanisms. So a lot of the discussion about social media is uh, about their intense effort to personalize, right? How do we give you your results? How do we personalize the news for you? How do we personalize uh, your feed in Facebook? How do we take all those things and give you only what you're supposed to want, right? What's uniquely tailored to you? 
This has an interesting sort of counterbalance to that. It is tailored in some way. I've specified city. Um, Twitter has begun to release what they call tailored trends, uh, which you can opt for. But the trends in this model has some other gesture involved, right? Inasmuch as it's sort of for you, it's about them or it's about us. I find that really interesting, right? Who is it supposed to be telling you something about? Um, what is it suggesting? What are these, you know, this list of terms telling you about what's going on? And again, I find myself using these very vague terms for someone, under some terms, for some period of time, right? The question of exactly those parameters is really unclear. And it's deliberately unclear, or sort of unavoidably unclear. This is very different than a social feed, where it's like, this is what your friends are saying, or a curated list of what your friends are saying. Um, it's different than uh, what a site puts on the front page to kind of you know, seduce new users. So you know, what does Flickr put on its front page, which might be much more editorial or curatorial. Uh, it's depending on some information about some public and things that are of particular interest or activity to them. Now, this may seem like a minor feature, right? I've ignored you know, 85% of Twitter's interface. Um, maybe you've never clicked on a trend, even if you use Twitter all the time. Um, it may be quite ignorable. Lots of the mobile interfaces don't even convey it, right? So many Twitter users maybe never see it. Um, if they see it, maybe they never use it. Easy to dismiss, both because it's like just a kind of a tweaky way to get you to click on other things. Oftentimes, it's kind of full of these like Twitter moments, right, where you have like a, a snarky little uh, phrase that you can attach to. Sometimes it's got news things in it. Uh, I checked today to see if I should replace this with today's, and it was all about the Bruins, right? Bruins and wings and this. It was like, bam. I, I didn't want to make like a sports argument here, but that's what was going on today. Um, so it'd be easy to sort of dismiss this maybe as irrelevant to users or maybe as irrelevant to an understanding of Twitter and how it organizes um, people's communication. I think it's a, a kind of interesting, and I want to hold on to it and expand it for a couple of reasons. One is um, it may, in fact, feed readers towards certain topics. Some people click on this, presumably. Um, and for those people, they may find their way to topics that they hadn't initiated, they didn't care about to begin with. So it does channel and direct people's activity to some degree. It's part of what uh, Tainer Bucher calls the technicities of attention, uh, the way that these networks are designed to sort of funnel attention and to generate it. Um, it can be read as a glimpse of what people care about, what they're paying attention to. So we can look at that and we might look at that and say, ah, this is what people are discussing. This is what matters. Right? So we may, it, we may treat it as legible, whether it is or not. And a lot of times, you know, cutting-edge news stories, breaking news stories do show up here. So it has some uh, read on interest and attention. It's also a hotly contested space for those who care a great deal about visibility. So people who have, uh, are using Twitter for sort of distinctly political purposes, who want to get their message across, think of this as one of the places, if we can get our term to trend, that's going to help us. Whether they're right or wrong, that is an important uh, sense of what this is going to do. Right. So, um, for instance, uh, there was an interesting article talking about the recent criticism of um, Stephen Colbert for one of the tweets that he passed around, what his writing staff passed around. And there was immediately a hashtag called Cancel Colbert. And one of the things was trying to get that term to surge and therefore circulate, right? to demonstrate its own relevance through mechanisms that recognize that it's relevant. Right? Um, one article called it a, a weaponized hashtag. Right? And part of the, the battle terrain of a weaponized hashtag is this little piece of real estate. 
Um, and what I find interesting is that the platform itself can get embroiled in these politics sometimes, right? So the fact that Twitter manages this or designed an algorithm such that uh, it produces these results, when someone disputes that assessment, when they think something should be there that isn't or something is there that they don't want it to be, in some ways Twitter comes under fire for that. And it raises a very interesting question about Twitter's responsibility, um, their ability to reveal exactly how they come up with this, which they're reluctant to do, at least in specifics, um, and a kind of uh, um, inevitable sense of, of political vulnerability. Right? If Twitter says why they're doing it, then they can be criticized on their criteria. If they don't say why they're doing it, then they can be criticized for censoring. If they say they didn't do anything, they can be criticized for covering up. So there's no way for them to close off that possibility, right? that possibility that this is somehow a managed or handled mechanism. So how do we think about this, and how can this help us think about um, algorithms more broadly and the kind of question of mediation of public discourse? What does it do? How does it shape public discourse? Um, in particular, does it tell us a story about a public? Is it legible in that way? Is it being treated as legible in that way? If so, what implications does that have? Um, and then the third one is sort of why now, why in this form, and why has it gained the currency that it has? Right? So that's a different question of, of its sort of implications, more like how come at all? What does it tell us about uh, what we seek in social networks uh, uh, in a sort of information environment? Okay, so I start with Twitter trends, but what I'd like to do next is sort of expand uh, the category of these tools. So there are many things that I think share some of this impulse that are mechanisms by which we end up navigating uh, social networks, information sites, the web itself, that we might call trending to kind of share uh, some of this impulse. So a couple things. First is uh, Twitter may have led with this in the social network world, but it's been uh, copied. So Facebook just recently introduced its own trending mechanism. So if you go to your Facebook page, you can look out on the right. Uh, they've been rolling this out, and they have their own version of things that are trending. Kind of interesting where they kind of use a headline or they try to explain their trend, which is not what Twitter does. Um, other sites, YouTube, for example, has a sort of trend blog where they'll tell you things about what's been hot, what's been surging. Um, uh, they'll do these kind of cute categorical things. We can see which videos are being watched, so therefore we can tell you which superhero is the most popular one by uh, the sort of activity of these videos. Lots of uh, these kinds of reports out of YouTube's data. Uh, Tumblr and Vine on their apps both have a trend mechanism um, uh, that tells you something usually in a kind of hashtag sense, similar to Twitter. And Reddit just introduced one, so uh, this is their explanation. I'll show you in a minute about where it appears. It's quite subtle. Um, but they just introduced this uh, at the end of last month, uh, or at the beginning of last month, um, which subreddit, so if you understand Reddit, it's like many, many, many discussions. So which discussion is trending? Uh, and you can click on there. And uh, Reddit is unlike some of the other ones where, in many ways, um, where they will explain what their algorithm, uh, how it's designed, and what it's trying to measure. So you can read quite a bit about what they consider trends. So then I want to go one step further. So um, we might also include in this category things like um, lists that tell us what's been most read, most viewed, most emailed, most forwarded, most clicked on, what's hot, right, which is a kind of vague term. There's probably some combination of those things. Uh, lots of websites tell us back information about uh, what's popular, 
through a measure of its activity, right? So New York Times is just one example. You can click on this page. These are the, it defaults to a 24-hour period, but you can change it to seven days or 30 days. And you can see what articles are uh, moving from off their site, right? So what's been sent, what's been forwarded, what's been clicked on. Uh, and Reddit, here's uh, sort of part of Reddit's interface. So trending is that little sort of green line. There are the sort of five categories. But if you look at the top, right, the many ways that you manage Reddit are all different algorithms for ranking these subreddits, right? So hot, new, rising, controversial. Each of these is a kind of trending algorithm, right? Um, measuring a slightly different thing about uh, what should come first according to what criteria. Um, Obviously, this word is sort of spreading into the cultural vocabulary, so we're seeing it in all sorts of places, in advertising. And I love this. This popped up in my email a week ago. So even our own field's journals, uh, I just love I was like literally writing this paper, and I was like, what's trending, right? Um, uh, so even our sort of you know, austere scholarly communities are telling us what's trending. And again, in a very similar gesture, right? Of all the things that we have, we're going to tell you which of those things seem to be most popular according to a vague criteria that has to do with activity and time frame. And we'll use that as a mechanism for you to find things that might be relevant to you. Not tailored to you as an individual, not based on what we know of your clicks, I don't think, right? Uh, that's not what's being offered, but more about the activity of the group, right? What's being downloaded, what's being read. We can go further. Um, I, I find this to be part of the category, but you might disagree with me. Um, so Amazon tells us the sales rank. If you think of the sales rank as a very, very long trending list, hundreds of thousands of items long, um, there's a kind of oblique legibility to that. Right? As an author, you may experience what I experienced was, I got a lot of weird meaning out of that number. And it's nearly meaningless, right? It's sort of like, you know, why is my book on the same list as Stephen King's book? It's ridiculous, right? But that number sort of goes up and down. I'm kind of like, ee, right? And, and it had, has nothing to do. It could be that, like, that week, you know, J.K. Rowling released the seventh Harry Potter book, and so everything fell, right? Or there was a whole big surge of, you know, self-help books. I don't know. Right? But somehow that number getting smaller was very exciting, and that number getting larger, as it inevitably did, was less exciting. Right? Uh, but again, why do we need to know that? Why is that offered? It's not clickable in the same sense of like leading you to something, but it's telling you something about the position of any one item based on the collective's activity or Amazon's measure of that activity. So we go further, so we have uh, things that are trend analytics, so reports back on sort of um, activity. This is kind of like the YouTube one, uh, but Google has built a big mechanism about what's trending in search, and it creates these reports. You can, you know, queue up different terms and see in a kind of Google Ngram way, uh, you know, what the relation of popularity is. So an analytics mechanism that gives you a similar access to um, activity as a signal of importance. Uh, for a while, the dating site OkCupid was releasing kind of curious analytic reports about what they had learned from their dating site, about photos, about contacts, about approaches. Um, and it was the same promise, right? We have an immense amount of data. We know something based on that data, all the things you're doing, and we can tell you something about that data. And although the link back to activity is oblique, you can't sort of click on that photo and see who, she's, who she is, it might somehow feed or... Uh, convince you to find this a worthwhile site, or it's just a curiosity. 
Uh, Pornhub did the same thing. So there's been a number of images circulating around where Pornhub, you can imagine what the site is, released uh, the sort of like hottest, I can't, it was just icky as I start talking with the words, the hottest search trends by state. You could click on it and see the top five, and it's apparently treated as quite revealing uh, for what, you know, people in Tennessee think and what people in California think. Um, and I, I use this clip because increasingly there are these networks like BuzzFeed, right, where there's a kind of currency for these things circulating around these, you know, um, heat maps of Twitter activity on certain things or uh, search results based on, you know, Facebook activity or a website activity. So BuzzFeed and others have helped circulate these. Um, I, on the day that I was looking at the New York Times one, when I clicked it over 30 days, the most popular... Um, the most viewed New York Times piece was an image produced from data collected on Facebook about what the most popular baseball team was in any given region. Right? So again, the kind of currency of these uh, glimpses of public concern, glimpses of public interest, glimpses of public attention. All right, I'm going to go further. And you, at some point, someone can stand up and just throw the notebook down and be like, that's too far. It's ridiculous. It's not in the same category anymore. But I find this one really fascinating. So you may know that Google has an autocomplete mechanism. You begin to type, and it will try to fill out what your search might be. And it's based, again, I don't know the algorithmic details. It's based on um, uh, comparable searches, right? So what other searches started with those letters? Which ones are the most popular? And it's using that same measurability, right? The, the most relevant public activity. And what I would suggest is that there's, as I gave you a weird one, um, this could be read as some kind of, again, kind of oblique but legible signal of some public. Now, maybe I'm reading it that way, and this is an empirical question. Does anyone else in the world read it this way? Um, but it's at least possible, and it's built along the same measures. Right? Google has access to an immense amount of information about what we search for, and it can use that information to tell us most people who start with C-A-N-G-O are looking for the following things. Right? So I might suggest this is the same category. We might even go further. I don't want to slide for this. We might even go further and say, in some ways, the search results themselves are, could be treated as kind of a legible read on a public. Right? Do we assume a public when we see 15 search results to our query and we sort of say, well, if the web is a very large, you know, multi-complicated discussion space, is that the most, right? Do we read our news feed that way as a kind of indicator of public interest? Those I'm going to leave off the category for now because they open up a whole can of worms. Um, but it's interesting to think about whether those stand in there as well. This one, I think, makes sense in part because it's based on the search activity, right? So it's very much the kind of like, this is what we know from the activity of our users, not based on treating the web as some kind of like stand-in for the public. So I think this might be an interesting feature of it. All of these offer a sense of what is trending, which again is an oblique category, but I think a suggestive one. And it's suggestive of something. It's suggestive of public attention beyond the known community, beyond the friends or followers or however the system is built. It has something about timeliness, right? Although it's unclear what that time frame is. Um, and something, maybe implicitly, maybe incorrectly, about relevance or importance, right? I think it's suggestive of that. It could be taken as that. And it may be promised as that, right? Now, if you asked Twitter, like, how come this thing went there? Or how come nothing ever important happens here? They could easily say, well, it's just the algorithm. It's just what's being talked about. There's no guarantee of relevance or importance. Nevertheless, I think a lot of these networks would like to have it both ways, right? Where they think these mechanisms approximate something relevant with a lot of noise, 
right? And that's one of uh, what these, what trends do. So I've been talking about these as calculated publics. This is the phrase that's in the title of the talk. Um, and what I'm talking about is not the public that somehow produced, right? Not all the people who were talking about that thing at that time, not the group, but the representation of a public, right? The snapshot of a public, this little created glimpse, this algorithmically created glimpse um, that offers an oblique suggestion about what some vague population beyond your reach cares about or is attending to uh, or is invested in. Um, and I'm not trying to get an into an argument about whether hashtags create publics in any real sense. I just think, like, what's the power of this offer, this little picture of a public? Is it suggestive of a public, or is it just like, here are 10 terms that matter? Do we read it as telling us something about somebody in some way? I think in a weird way, we are awash in these little glimpses of the public. Um, barometers of public interest that we're invited to attend to, invited to join. Um, they are not accurate or self-evident in any straightforward way, but I think that they are legible, I think they are provocative, and I think they are mundane. And we start to look at how often we run into these little glimpses. This is what Americans think. This is what's going on on Twitter. This is what's being searched for the most. Uh, we actually find them everywhere, or maybe I'm obsessively finding them everywhere. And I call them calculated both because they're obviously algorithmically produced, so there is a calculation involved, but they're also strategic, right? There's a calculation involved in that sense as well. Um, they're built on an immense amount of data, and of course on the assumptions that that data is, uh, 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 on what can be said from that data. They serve an important purpose, if only for the platform, right? Encouraging people, you know, making the site sticky, encouraging people to stay. Um, but maybe also for users, at least some users, who have an ideological, political investment in being visible, a financial investment in being visible, a social investment in being visible. Um, so those who want attention to their political cause need mechanisms of online attention to pay attention to them. Um, uh, uh, people in the marketplace or the marketplace of ideas need attention mechanisms to highlight what they're doing, to bring that out of the morass of things you could go look at and maybe a kind of legitimacy that it affords, right? Ever so slight. It's not the same as getting front page in the New York Times. It's maybe closer to getting the top email article in the New York Times, but maybe it's, uh, it's been chosen, right? And even if that's a sort of um, misunderstanding of what's happening, we still look for these mechanisms to certify, right? And I think we're in a very interesting place where it's, we're reworking what it means for information to have been served up by a site by a provider, and what exactly that conveys beyond you might like this, but with what offer? What's the nature of the offer that comes with that? Okay. Um, and they become, uh, like I said, terrains of political contestation. <clears throat> so now I think I want to make this move where we try to connect this to historical category, right? We, don't, we only get so far if we think about this as a sort of five-year-old phenomenon, Right, where it's all about algorithms. We can get back to the peculiarity of doing this algorithmically. That could be a part of the story. Um, but it might be that um, a historic, historical lineage of similar mechanisms that play similar roles, that do this kind of serving up of a representation of the public, the kinds of questions we've been asking about those for quite a long time might pertain here. Might reach different answers, but might pertain here. And this is a move that I've been trying to do in my sort of broader work around algorithms I, I think would help in a number of cases. So uh, in a piece that I wrote about uh, the sort of how we should do sociology of algorithms, 
Um, I suggested that maybe the judgments that search engines make about what's relevant to your search are not unlike the judgments that newspaper editors made about newsworthiness, right? It, it is an assessment. It's a calculation of what's relevant. It's based on what can be known about the community. It also has commercial ends and limitations. It also gets proceduralized in really important ways, right? So maybe the way we have to unpack those terms, now we have to unpack relevance, right, as assessed by Google, just like we have to um, unpack newsworthiness as assessed by uh, um, an editor. Um, I think we can make the same move here. I think we can connect this to historical context, and then we can see uh, what's um, contiguous with the concerns we've had and also maybe what's peculiar about this version. So for this part, I owe a debt uh, to Sarah Igo, who has a really interesting book called The Average American. Um, and she is making a really uh, uh, interesting case about uh, a 20th century phenomenon, a kind of massive rise and fascination with surveys and other forms of social data that was particularly focused on Americans. And what she said was before the, you know, the sort of Middletown surveys, the sort of 20s and 30s, when people surveyed what people were doing or what they thought, it was about deviant populations. It was about criminals. It was about the poor. It was about immigrants. It was about the other. And there seemed to be this really interesting shift where we increasingly got fascinated with the average American, the typical American, the representative community. And she looks at the Middletown uh, sociological research. She looks at Gallup polling. And she looks at the Kinsey sex research and uses them as a way to kind of think through this um, the shift, both in being interested in this the way that techniques developed around it, so statistical sampling, um, as well as what it meant that this, these results were so circulated. Right? Um, the Lynn's book was a bestseller. The Kinsey report was a bestseller. Right? The Gallup poll results were in the front page of the paper every week. Why was it that the public was hungry for these, not just you know, an institution like an advertising institution that wants to know certain things? Why did they gain public currency? Why did that seem to be such a telling thing to tell? Um, she's also in some ways relying on James Benninger, uh, who talks about what he calls mass feedback technologies, market research, surveying, um, interviews. And in part, he can, what I find interesting is that he connects it to the rise of mass communication, right? which clearly there's something here. Once you have a network of information, once you have one that extends you past your known community, there, is, there may be a sort of eagerness to have some grasp on who those people are, how you're a part of them, and what's relevant to them. So now I'm going to blow the category up further. Here comes the punch bowl. I want to think about this in relation to a bunch of things, some of which is what Igo's talking about, some other ones as well. Um, so uh, surveys and uh, sort of social scientific research for public consumption. Um, polling, right? And we might add in here market research, which is an interesting connection to both of those. Um, maybe also audience metrics, so like Nielsen ratings. Again, why is it interesting for us to know what the top 10 TV shows are? How has that become a legible object? Not just to the broadcasters who want to know that and the advertisers who want to know that, but increasingly as something that the public is interested in or at least is told. And then as a kind of contrast, if only because they've chosen the word trends, I also want to think about trend spotting, right? Uh, people who tell us what the fashion trends are, people who tell us what the music trends are, people who tell us what the cultural trends are. Very different um, in terms of method, but I think also very interesting about who gets to tell these stories and what we make of them, right? And um, what position that fills for us. Okay. That leads me to seven questions. 
punch bowl sized. Now I'm grasping. The first question I think we can ask is who has the power to, um, to know these things in the first place, to produce these glimpses of public attention? Not just anyone can tell us what people do in Middletown or Muncie, Indiana. Not everyone can tell us what hundreds of thousands of Americans think about the election or issue X. Right? It takes desire, it takes resources, and it takes authority to collect the kind of data necessary to even perform that. Right? Um, there's an interesting difference between organizations that are in a position to seek that data and organizations that are in a position to compel that data. Right? So we might want to distinguish between, uh, say, the government who can ask us to fill out a census and enforce that upon us and report that on a very wide scale, and something like a market research organization that has the resources to go out and try to get this data, to try to ask 10,000 people what they think of uh, you know, this brand new soda. Um, those institutions that have the ability to seek it but not the ability to compel it face certain kinds of barriers, right? How do you convince people to participate? Um, how do you man make sure that your queries are not intrusive, right? Are not seen as, as overly intrusive? Um, and, uh, and then arguments about how you can extrapolate from what you were able to know to what you claim to know, right? So the expansion of your information out to uh, uh, an assertion. So, you know, to bring that to the contemporary example, obviously um, the kinds of trends that I'm talking about are coming out of social media platforms. Uh, we have willingly given them an immense amount of information, right? Our traces, our clicks, our likes, our associations. Um, and it gives them an immense power to know and to claim to know um, with a couple limitations, right? So platform specificity, right? Twitter can know very easily what happens on Twitter. Right? It's a little bit harder for them to expand past that. Right? So we tend to get these platform-specific glimpses. There's an interesting side question, which is, is it that all of these institutions and practices have in some ways made us comfortable with this kind of scrutiny? Right? A very contemporary debate about how comfortable we are that information is being looked at, that Facebook knows our activities, that the NSA can sort of you know, look at our metadata. Maybe for a century we've been training ourselves to accept state and commercial institutions wanting desperately to know things about us and it being increasingly acceptable for, for these mechanisms to be part of our practices, right? To be accosted outside the grocery store, asked about our shopping habits, um, how much has that set the, uh, set the bar for, um, for those clicks and likes being tracked and collected by Facebook? There's also a sort of political economic concern. So um, rather than uh, the broadcasters and advertisers having Nielsen doing that ratings information and then conveying that back, a third party, increasingly it's the institutions themselves, right? So it's Twitter doing this uh, um, information seeking on Twitter data, right? So instead of there being a third party that might be a, a regulatable organization, organization that has competing interests about privacy or about intervention. This is happening internal to the provider itself. And recent news suggests that many of these social media platforms are buying up um, data firehose providers. So Twitter just bought GNIP. Um, it was a partner already, but GNIP now collects all the data not just from Twitter, but also from Tumblr, from Instagram, and Twitter now owns that and provides that service to those partners. So Twitter can exceed um, what it can collect through its own service, it can draw on these as well. Second question um, is, 
what are the mechanisms by which this information is generated? What does that focus on and what does that overlook? And there are a couple concerns that we could raise about some of the traditional ones, about Gallup polling, about um, uh, survey research, about what gets overlooked and left out when someone is trying to be comprehensive or trying to be exhaustive or trying to be objective. Um, so some things get left out because they don't seem relevant. So the Middletown study, when the Lynns first arrived in Middletown, they were um, eager in part to study the immigrant experience. But as they began to pitch this report and to their publishers, especially in their funders, as a glimpse of the American community, of a representative American community, um, they decided to ignore that community. They focused entirely on the white population of Muncie, despite the fact that the diversity of Muncie at that time made it typical, right? Um, and so somehow that community was left out of that story. And then the research based on Muncie, this Middletown report, told the story about Americanness. But of course, it was a particular slice of Americanness. Um, some things get left out because of the way the measurements are made. So another story about, uh, about Gallup is that um, Gallup, because it was often trying to report on election-type results, both during a campaign but even around it, um, uh, politically relevant questions, they would systematically leave out the young, the black, the immigrant, and the poor with the assumption that they don't vote as much. So if you ask them those questions, then the results would skew away from what actually was going to happen at the polling office. Right? That assumption, problematic as it was, gets built into the, uh, to the results as well. Uh, there's human bias in the process, so um, when uh, pollsters went to homes, there were some homes that they weren't comfortable approaching, people they weren't comfortable talking to, people they found were resistant to the questions they asked, and a lot of times they avoided those people altogether. Uh, and then certainly the methods by which you ask these questions can skew things. We had a recent discussion about that as... Um, campaign polling realized that uh, they'd been using landline phones because they have the rights to do that and it was easier. They weren't going after cell phones. Of course, the population was increasingly moving to cell phones and not idiosyncratically, but the young, the wealthy, right? So the people that they um, were undersampling just because of their method, just because of how they reach people. Um, there's other questions about whether these things measure what they claim to, right? So there's a problem with some of this data about forced choice. If you're a market researcher and you say, of these three brands, which one do you like the most? And people answer it. You can assume this is the most popular one, but that may forget people who couldn't care less, people who don't buy that stuff, people who wanted a fourth option. Um, and it may, in fact, channel preferences into things that overinflate uh, the results. Same with audience measures. What do you watch on Thursday? Well, I watch you know, The Good Wife. Maybe it's the best thing on. Right? It doesn't mean that's what they would want. Right? That doesn't mean it's the ideal. It just means of the things uh, that I can choose, what have I chosen? And then finally, there are some things that can be measured in these ways and some things that cannot. Right? So Ian Ang has written a, a very good analysis of audience measures. One of the things she points out is that you can measure what someone is watching at a certain time. Was the TV on? What show was it? You can't measure, did people care about it? Who watched it? Did they watch it with interest? Did they watch it distractedly? Did they do something with it? Were they watching it because they were pissed about it? Right? All sorts of questions about the meaningfulness that an advertiser or broadcaster might actually want to know, but are much, much harder to measure in these ways. So now if we think about um, trends, one thing we can think about is um, leaving behind the mechanisms by which you measured some people and made claims about all. 
right? So the Middletown research said, we're going to look at Muncie, and that's going to tell us a story about America, right? So they had to make this claim about representativeness. This town is America, or it's a cross-section of America, or it is an exemplar of America. Gallup had to depend on statistical sampling. We're going to find a cross-section of people, and we're going to, we're going to um, hold for biases so that we get this um, stand-in for the American public. A lot of people are quite excited about the fact that the data we can get from Twitter or from Facebook is all of the people. All of the people using Facebook, parentheses, all the people who made their information public, um, minus the people who aren't on those networks, right? So um, there are all sorts of questions about what that means, but the promise is you're not looking at a statistical slice. You're looking at all the activity during that month or that year on that platform. But the main question, I think, for algorithmic versions of this is about the criteria. Right? So um, one of the things that I find really interesting is what is it that Twitter, for example, is actually measuring? Right? And again, as I said, part of what they can't do is tell you exactly, in part because they don't want people gaming the system, in part because they don't want competitors sort of easily building a matching system. When they've come under fire and people have said, what is this trend algorithm really doing? They've told us something about um, what that actually measures. Um, it's not just quantity, as you might imagine, right? Someone sort of says trends. I don't know. It's lots of people are talking about it. It's something closer to velocity, right? So they look for um, rapid shifts. They look for growths. Um, there is a time frame although they don't want to specify what the time frame is, right? So it must be happening in a relatively recent and relatively rapid way, or else it's not considered. So that means that things that grow slowly don't trend. They grow, but they don't trend, right? They don't ever reach that threshold where they uh, uh, sort of fit that spike model. They count new tweets more than retweets. Again, sort of makes sense, right? Um, but if you don't know that, you might imagine all your retweeting activity that was helping that discussion going. That counts, but it doesn't count as much, right? So the new tweets are prioritized. And this one I found sort of most interesting. They count terms that are happening across clusters of people more than they do terms that are happening actively in a single cluster of people. So if lots of people are talking about something, but they're already following each other, they're already densely connected, that is not as highly valued in the trend algorithm as something that's showing up across clusters, right? people who aren't connected to each other but talking about the same thing. Right? And that's probably one of the key reasons when people said, when Occupy Wall Street was happening, people said, how come it's not trending? Everyone's talking about this. Right? Well, two things. One is, if you're in it and you're super excited, everyone's talking about it, but that's like your group of people. So maybe not everyone's talking about it. But the second thing is, a densely connected network. In fact, they were deliberately densely connected already because they were using Twitter to build this project. When they finally hit these moments, Zuccotti Park and the police coming, that was already a densely connected network. Right, so that may have actually worked against them, as opposed to Kim Kardashian's wedding, which was happening at the same time. Lots of people talking about it who don't know each other because it's on television, because it's in the magazines. Right, so that algorithm privileges things that happen on a public scale, in some ways, off of Twitter, outside of Twitter. Right? Because in some ways, if you're using Twitter for it, you're supposed to build these dense networks. Right? You can imagine a different algorithm that says, well, what you should want to know about is things that you don't have any other access to. Some group over here is super excited about this topic. That might be relevant to you. You're not going to get it through mass media. You're not going to get it because somebody in your network happens to be talking about it. We'll give it to you. 
That's a very different politics about what should be distributed and what should be highlighted. Where are we now? To the purpose to which they're generated and then um, how that shapes the representation. So, um, you know, the obvious question is, uh, if market research is conducted and it's for selling products, then that may shape the kinds of questions that are being asked. Right? One of the things interesting about Gallup and about some of the uh, competitors, Roper at the time, was that they started in market research. Uh, and they brought those techniques over to polling on political issues. Right? And there's been a critique, right? C. Wright Mills' critique of Lazarsfeld in the communication literature was, you're treating soap choices like candidate choices. Maybe those aren't the same thing. But if you begin to ask questions like a product question, maybe that um, affects the kind of questions you ask and the questions you uh, seek to answer. Um, similar uh, for sort of cultural tastemakers, right? A very precarious notion of like who gets to say that a fashion trend is happening or a musical trend is happening, and a very uh, contentious line between whether you're doing that for a sponsor or whether you're doing that as a read of culture. Are you a shill or are you a tastemaker? Right? So a lot of defending of that line between a kind of commercial purpose and a kind of um, public purpose. Right? Um, when, in fact, in some ways, it's always both. So when we think about Twitter, at one point, Twitter tweaked its algorithm. Um, and it said, what we want to do is we want to get things that are more relevant than things that are more popular. And the press sort of said, this is a Justin Bieber problem. They don't want Justin Bieber to be trending all the time. That's exhausting. Those people just talk, 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 talk. We need to change the algorithm such that um, these other things. Now, you might argue that that's a kind of like public move instead of a commercial move, right? Twitter benefits from people talking about Justin Bieber. They may not like it, but, but that's a lot of activity. That's a strong community, right? It got him into our world. Thank you. Um, but what I would say is that these are calculations that are both about public and commercial, right? Twitter has been pitching itself as valuable in part because of the role it plays in political activity and democratic revolutions. Um, so these are competing commercial and public imperatives, right? This mechanism is simultaneously a mechanism to tell you about what's publicly relevant and to make it a commercially viable site and to make it sticky for people to spend more time on that site. It's all of those things at the same time. Um, similar questions about when sponsored content appears in this. Should sponsored content be in the trends list? Is that supposed to be a pure list? Or is, it, is there room for a sponsored link inside of trends? Is it a measure of activity or can it be kind of um, curated for commercial purposes? Um, how do these, what is the basis upon which these claims have authority and legitimacy? So this has a lot to do with um, who produces them and also the means, but it's different than do the means matter, do they have some effect on, the, on what gets told. These are also mechanisms um, that assure that this information is legitimate. So um, for instance, Gallup uh, had to describe polling as a transparent and unmediated means of hearing what people think. Right? Uh, they often had to say that they had no political stakes in it. The Gallup said he never voted. Right? And all of that gesturing was to offer a kind of sheen of impartiality to this. It wasn't a political hatchet. It wasn't meant to move something in one direction or the other. Right? So the kinds of um, legitimation resources that these can fall back on, right? statistics, political impartiality, Right? open-minded academic methods. Right? All these things offer up a way to justify that these are, in fact, accurate glimpses of the public and not constructed. 
Right? And the reality is these, these are constructed in all sorts of ways, all sorts of selection processes and emphases, but they need to be performed as impartial and performed as legitimate. Um, for trends, for contemporary algorithmic trends, the algorithm itself offers a kind of legitimacy. We constantly hear Twitter, Google saying, well, this was what the algorithm produced, right? The algorithm is impartial. And that offers a kind of um, mathematical legitimacy, right? A kind of hands-off legitimacy, which, again, distances the tool from, of course, the people who produce it and tweak it and curate it and judge it when it's doing well or badly, right? But the algorithm offers a kind of legitimacy. It stands in for kind of cool, impartial calculation as opposed to the messiness of human subjectivity, right? Human choice. Okay. Um, Igo makes a really interesting point about the fact that these are public, right? The fact that Gallup wasn't just delivering this information to candidates, but he was presenting it deliberately for the public in newspapers, right? These are served up for public consumption, and they have a kind of public currency, right? So some kinds of things like polls deliberately produced for the public, um, others that are produced for a, a stakeholder but then get loosed from that and show up, so sort of market reports that then become news, um, and then increasingly things that um, uh, were intra-industry but are now public, right? So the idea of, you know, the box office returns for last weekend, right? It was such that 20 years ago only the movie industry knew that information and only the movie industry cared, right? And now that's in magazines. Now that's on blogs, right? What was the best-selling film of this weekend, right? That information has become uh, a sort of gaining public currency. And with public currency, there's obviously this worry about effect, Right, so does the poll, does the Gallup poll have an effect on voting habits, right? Does it depress voter turnout because it feels like a foregone conclusion? Or does it suggest that someone is winning and give them a kind of like, uh, you know, a, a bias towards winning? People want to be on the winning side, right? So does the, um, is it a snapshot of the public that's handed off and who knows? Or is it something that injects into the public and then guides activity? And I think this, in, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing concerns about with um, with contemporary algorithms and the way that they present what's important or what the public cares about. Um, also, the question of people performing for scrutiny, the kind of observation bias. Right? So the classic with audience research was when Nielsen switched from diaries where you wrote down what you were watching to a, a mechanism attached to your TV that kept track of what you were watching. Suddenly, PBS's ratings went way down. Because it turns out people were writing PBS because they felt good. You were like, I'm not going to write that I watched Fox all day, right? I got PBS. And people would even leave it on, right? There were, there were reports of people leaving the TV on when they went to bed on C-SPAN, right, to sort of like show that they were intelligent or to support uh, a channel that they wanted to show their support for, even though it wasn't what they were watching. And we're seeing that now, certainly with Twitter Trends as a terrain, the kind of strategic orientation towards that, gaming the system, um, shaping your communication to fit that, right? So if the measure understands things in certain ways, then you turn yourself to face the measure, right? You turn your practices to be understood in a certain way. Um, also, these measures are getting taken up and circulated, so third parties like Trendistic will use the Twitter trends and tell you much, much more. We see BuzzFeed circulating sort of uh, glimpses and claims about this, and we're even seeing this taken up in sort of public environments. This is why I kept Google Autocomplete in here. This was a, a recent um, poster series from the UN about women's rights. They made four of these images, and they used Google Autocomplete to reveal sexist and misogynistic um, 
attitudes, not because they sort of said, this is what's going on, but because Google revealed it by accident. Right? It was called the Autocomplete series, which I love. Right? Um, and there are four of them, and they're quite compelling. And there were interviews with the people, and they said, we didn't you know, take out other results. Of course, there's lots of questions about, like, when you do a Google search, are you signed in? Are you finding certain kinds of things? But legitimately, it's not like these opinions aren't out there. So you know, it is a revealing glimpse. But the very power of this campaign depends on the idea that that tells you a great deal about humanity somewhere, somehow, in some, right, with, and it doesn't worry too much about exactly who's being measured in this space, right? If you didn't take those results as telling you something accurate about the public, this would be a meaningless poster, right? It only matters if you're like, God, that's what people think, that's what people say. How revealing. I wouldn't have seen it except for the fact that Google sort of accidentally collected it up and someone happened to see it, right? So the very power of that um, depends on this being treated as a legitimate glimpse of the public and what the public thinks about and cares about. Um, two more things. I'll do these quickly because I want to get to the end. So um, the public doesn't just sort of receive these um, passively. Uh, the claims that get made out of polling, out of surveys, uh, out of market research, audience analytics, get challenged, get criticized for their method, for what they say, for what they ignore. Um, and there were a lot of reactions that Igo talks about in sort of the 20th century, mid-20th century, about whether the Lins captured the life of Muncie, whether they had a right to do so, whether it was invasive, whether Muncie is or is not representative uh, of sort of an American life that was being claimed, right? whether Gallup is affecting the results, whether Gallup is, has a political bias, right? whether Nate Silver has a political bias, whether Nate Silver is affecting results. These questions continue. Um, and we can see similar questions being asked about, um, about uh, these kind of algorithmic measures. So one would be the Occupy Wall Street one. There were similar questions raised around WikiLeaks. How come it's not trending? It must be some kind of a censorship. Um, when Amazon uh, had an incident a couple years ago that people called Amazon fail, where all of a sudden a number of books that were gay and lesbian friendly fell off the sales rank, just disappeared, had no sales rank. Right? And people were like, oh, Amazon is censoring gay and lesbian fiction, or it's been hacked, or something, right? But it happened so immediately, it happened so clearly. And Amazon admitted that they'd made a mistake where they had ticked off the box on tens of thousands of books that were all gay and lesbian fiction as adult. And adult doesn't go in the sales rank. That, to me, is really interesting, right? Because whatever you read of that, that list, 231,107, ha-ha, my book's selling well, right? There are things that don't go in that list. And they're not an accident. They're categorical. They're curational. Right? So our ability to challenge what these things represent. And finally, this question that she asks about, what needs does this satisfy? Why? why? Why the shift in the 20th century to this fascination with the average American, with the sort of the typical? And her argument is that in the sort of mid-century, where we see a kind of, you know, the anxiety around industrialization, anxiety around the community, and people want to see some coherent picture of the American community. They want to understand that incredibly growing population, right? In the worry that their world was sort of fracturing under war and industry and global and all this stuff, that there's still something recognizable, something representable, something measurable. So what did, what did, what did Twitter trends serve? What do they satisfy? What's that anxiety? I don't know. I mean, I think in something, it's something like information overload. That's an easy answer. People feel swamped, right? They want some 
uh, some way to navigate. That's too easy, right? Because it's something deeper. Because these, there are all sorts of mechanisms of why, you know, how you manage to get through content on a platform. But trends has sort of popped a little bit. It's got this cultural currency, right? And maybe we've cared about trend, trends for 80 years. Or we've cared for longer, right? So maybe it's just the same impulses. Um, I wonder if it's something like grasp, right? It's something about the sense of knowing. It's something about the sense of knowing what's out there combined with a kind of coherence, right? Is it that we're all personalized? We're all talking about everything? There's no rhyme or reason? Or can we recognize that things do gather? They do coalesce, right? And that's a kind of promise of Twitter trends, both to have measured that fact and, in fact, to put you right in it, right? To, to let you click, and then you find yourself in that coalesced space. So a couple things that I'm left with. One is this question of the algorithmic criteria that are baked in. Right, the idea that trends measure Twitter trends measures um, cross-cluster public interest and not intra-cluster public interest. It makes sense. There's a kind of logic to it. It's not wrong, but it's specific. It has a theory about publics. It has a theory about what should matter. It has a theory about what you're not going to get to and might want to. Right, and what it's what Twitter's job is to deliver this up. Right. Um, these things have to be oblique. They can't deliver these criteria. So, of course, we're left with this oblique measure um, that tells us something about it, but not actually the thresholds, like how many clusters and how much time frame. Those are still left to the imagination or left as unknown. Um, we have a kind of triple amplification problem. So this selection bias, what the platform already draws from users and selects from them in terms of use, combined with what the algorithm looks for, combined with what effect it might have that it's being presented, a kind of further amplification, right? So is it that Twitter generates certain kinds of practices, those practices get measured by trends, some of which then get highlighted, and the very highlighting of them then makes them popular, right? So how is that a kind of distortive effect? That would be one question. But how does that channel and shape uh, the activity on the site and what we think of as sort of online public deliberation? Um, this question of how you make yourself visible, visible. So I think the idea that we turn to face the algorithm, we make ourselves recognizable. We do it every time we put a hashtag, right? Why put that little crosshatch? Because you want the statement you made to not just get to the people who follow you, but you want it to be connected to anybody who's talking about that term, right? You're gaming the system, but in a perfectly genuine way. You're amplifying yourself by understanding the mechanism of the system. Right? So just as someone who wants to be covered by the nightly news knows when to deliver that information, knows how to present it, knows how to give them visuals, knows who to talk to, we also are sort of orienting ourselves to the mechanism that will amplify us or that promises to amplify us. And there's interesting pressure on language here. Right? Because trends depend so much on wording, there's an impulse. You know, activist groups will say, we've got to settle on a, on a hashtag because that will coalesce stuff. In part, that way we can find ourselves, and in part because we might then be recognized as being relevant. Right? So it puts pressure on language in really interesting ways. Um, Kate Crawford has asked the question, you know, what about the kinds of things that we debate but that have agonistic versions of language? Right? What about the places where the way you frame it the way I frame it, it is a single discussion, but we use different terminology by definition. Our perspectives are cross-purposed in language, but should be put together. You know, can natural language processing techniques recognize that, recognize those conversations as belonging together, even though they're not linguistically united? 
Um, and then I think there's something really interesting about this emphasis on surging. Right? We think about all the old arguments about media agenda setting, about the kind of topics and the kind of frameworks that tend to get highlighted, that tend to amplify. One aspect of that's kind of interesting is about um, the shape of the conversation itself, time frame, speed, velocity. Right? An easy way to say is like, you know, cable news cares about stuff right now. It's got about like a like a four-hour window, and if it didn't fall on that, it kind of forgets it, and it's very bad at telling stories that kind of bubble over a month, right? So there's sort of structurally something difficult about slow burns and something very visible about sort of incidents. So I think we would have to unpack this question about all of the things that are discussed, what trends, right? What does it mean to pay attention to velocity? What does it mean to pay attention to decay, right? What is that time frame after which something falls out of interest? And those calibrations, I think, are really uh, important and sort of powerful. And then it leaves me, sorry, this is the last thing, it leaves me with a kind of probably an empirical question that I have not tried to answer yet, I apologize, um, which is, does any of this have any of these effects on anyone? Is anyone reading that list as implying a public? Are they treating that glimpse as legible, or is that just treated as a kind of instrumental mechanism within the platform? Right? Are any of these claims about a public you think you can know that's obliquely there that you then read through this kind of hieroglyph of these eight terms or these four panels, right, or this graph. Does it read as a public? Do we make assumptions about a public or the public? And does that then orient the kind of things that we say or the way we participate or how we understand our place in that? Um, I point out two sort of articles. One is in the collection. These are things that like, are the sort of basis of this. I'm happy to share them if you can't find them yourself. And I'm really grateful for the extra time you gave me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great. And as usual, we have a lot of time for questions and discussion. Please. Let me just check. So the we here, you're imagining someone who designs algorithms for. Okay. Okay. So do the, should the designers of the algorithm be responsible for what comes out? Um, I can punt and say, I mean, the, the the true answer, but feels like a punt, is um, I think we are working out what that obligation is right now, and I think that um, the major platforms want it both ways. Uh, they would like it such that. Um, when something is relevant, they get credit for it. Um, and when something is irrelevant or downright irresponsible, they can say it was just the algorithm. Or they can say, that was you by way of the algorithm, right? Because we're just reading all of your activity. We're using your traces as evidence. Um, I think a lot of the things that we've seen just in the last couple of years have been these moments where people have said around very specific moments, very specific sort of questionable content, shouldn't you be responsible for this? Um, now, the parameters of how much we can expect algorithm designers to be responsible for it is still unclear, I think. Um, I do think that we could ask them to be much more responsible than they're currently claiming to be. I think it is in their economic and public interest to uh, hold off as much responsibility as they can and gain as much credit as they can. But uh, you know, if the history of 
media technologies teaches anything is that these things get worked out over long periods of time. And they get worked out um, around technologies as they um, in fact matter to specific public practices, to election moments, to activist organizations, to um, um, marginalized communities, to contentious topics. And those are the places where we then say, if, if what you delivered, if what you recommended, if what you allowed to trend is pernicious, then um, we are, we, whoever that community is that begins to speak about it, um, are unwilling to allow you to pass responsibility on that. Um, there's a very interesting moment where um, the, uh, my other research is interested in kind of the rules that these platforms set about inappropriate material, right, contentious speech. Google has often, for their search engine, has often said, we're not going to manipulate the index. The index is the index. The algorithm looks at your activity and tells you what's relevant. And if we start to play this game about saying, yes, this, no, this, this is unacceptable, this shouldn't be there, then all bets are off, right? Now, that's a very safe position for them to take, right? They don't want to be in the, in the position of having to say, this is inappropriate to some community according to some moral values where someone else thinks that it's okay. Um, and then there was an incident where uh, an image of Michelle Obama started to reach the top of the Google Images search, and it was this hideous, hideous Photoshop mix of her face with a baboon, extremely racist, awful. Um, and people said, dear God, how can you let this go to the top of your search engine? How can it be that when someone types in Michelle Obama, this is the first thing they get? And Google's answer at first was, look, we don't like it, but it's coming up because of activity. It's coming up because of, I mean, we, the algorithm found it. Right? And they wanted that position. Right? We're over here. It's in our best interest to have an algorithm that just measures activity, does it calculation, does it fairly. Um, but the criticism didn't stop. And so they eventually changed their policy. They deleted that image from the index. They put a message that said, these search results have been adjusted. And you can click Y. And then, additionally, they figured out that that image was on a blogger.com blog. And so they just shut it down, which is another bigger story about, you know, the behemoth that is Google. Um, so those are the moments where we say that algorithm defense doesn't cut it for this, right? For something that is so atrociously racist that it's going to have the consequences we worry that it's going to have. I, I, my, my sense is that the obligation of responsibility is going to grow, but it's only going to grow because people push against this kind of, it's okay because the algorithm gesturing. Should I? Should I? Chris. Um, so I love the Occupy Wall Street and Kardashians and you know, Kardashians with all these um, uh, disconnected people from Twitter's perspective. We're talking about the same thing, but from another yeah. perspective, right? Those people are densely connected to the same magazines, the same radio shows, the same television. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, one thing which I guess hadn't occurred to me before is that it's, um, when you talk about the calculated public, it's the calculated public uh, from Twitter's perspective. Yes, right? So, that's so right. the Occupy Wall Street people are densely interconnected according to Twitter, but maybe loosely connected <laughs> according to the mainstream media, right. whatever you want to call that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the mainstream media is densely interconnected about connections, and that's just like an observation that I think that's plays right. into these questions of <clears throat> public from which system's perspective and what they're capable of recognizing. Yeah. yeah. Um, the second point is there's this great quote, just as Roland are playing the historical anticipant game, <laughs> um, from uh, Charles Babbage. Mm. Um, when somebody asks him as he's working on his calculating engine, they say, but Mr. Babbage, if I enter the wrong numbers into your machine, will the right answers come out? 
Um, and he says, I can't comprehend the state of mind that would lead to that kind of question. But I think it shows that back in the 1800s, there are people who are just sort of like, well, even if I put in the wrong answers to this magical machine, the right. Right, it can somehow know the right answer. Right. Um, like way back when this is very, like, you know, metal and gears and screws mm. and, uh, and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I like this, I like this, but the first point you made, especially, it's, it's really fascinating to think about Twitter saying, we're going to judge, and it, it's sort of within their right, right? It's like it's their mechanism and it's their data, right? It's sort of, we're already pushing this notion, this responsibility notion to say, we're expecting you to be keepers of public discourse and you've got a position you could take, which is we're just a commercial provider and we do X, Y, and Z, right? Um, but the way that the orientation is such that they feel like they know very particular things about the public based on stuff they know, like are we den- are we already connected, right? Are you connected to people I'm connected to? Is our network dense or loose or decentralized or fractured or whatever? So a that's information that you and I don't really have. We can't. It's very hard for us to approximate that. I can see who I follow, but once we get past that, um, it's very hard for me to know whether you and I are densely connected or not. Um, Twitter has that information, right? Just like um, I put things out to friends and friends of friends on Facebook. I, there's no way for me to accurately, there's very little way for me to accurately know what that community is, right? Um, but Facebook and Twitter know those things, at least by the measure. Very different than, maybe use Benedict Anderson's Imagine community, right? Um, the claim that when everyone read a newspaper, that put them together in a symbolic way, and maybe in ways that mattered in a real sense sometimes, um, but yeah, so I, I, I find it very interesting that it's like, it's very counterintuitive that Twitter would say, dense networks actually hurt you in this criteria, and connection through the not us network actually helps you, right? And that may not be the way that they describe it, right? But I think in some ways it's, it's having that effect. Yeah, I guess just one quick yeah. follow-up question. You, know, you mentioned measurability a lot. Yeah. And can you... Have you tried to tie measurability into the political economy? Like, to what extent uh, is, like, BuzzFeed writing about Pornhub because BuzzFeed's just trying to turn out a billion articles a day? Mm-hmm. And it's so damn easy to right. just measure things computationally in certain right. respects. It's much easier than it would be computationally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that I worry about easy because it's easy in some ways and it's Im- immensely resource um, costly in other ways. But I, I do think that one of the things we need to think about, I'm looking at the, like, how does an individual who encounters Twitter have this kind of glimpse offered to them and does that sort of channel them? Um, but even this article that I sort of popped up as a, as a cheat, um, I didn't put it in there, um, about, you know, our groups being sort of throttled down by Facebook, right? Even that argument kind of misunderstands, right? There's always going to be some... some um, constantly adjusted balance between what kinds of things are recognized as relevant categorically, right? Um, Activist groups may lose or win based on some of those calculations and not others. And certainly, you know, BuzzFeed and Upworthy, they're playing a whole game that says, how do we do certain things that flood, that get links really quickly, that, you know, benefit from a surge and surge further, right? So they're building entire sort of information delivery systems on... Facebook's calculations, which can change, right? That's not a, a sort of earthen terrain that doesn't change under their feet, right? So how Facebook understands their responsibility, how that builds into an algorithm that weights things, and then how providers, both commercial providers like BuzzFeed, political providers like Occupy, individual providers like somebody, right? How they then orient themselves towards that. So there's a, there's a business orientation that's 
parallel but quite different, like what BuzzFeed has to do to sort of play a game that is in some ways built on a terrain designed by Facebook and shifting shifting all the time and sometimes in relation to their efforts, right? Um, which is different but sort of weirdly parallel to how you or I might say, like, how do I get heard on my Facebook feed? Yeah, Sasha. Just following this on the same thread, so this, uh, this image by Gilad looks Gilad, like yeah. social flow, um, you know, the article um, about Occupy Wall Street and trending that conversation, one of the things that Gilad figured out by reverse <coughs> engineering, you know, the Twitter trending algorithm, right. They had access to the, you know, the fire hose. Right. Um, um, I think it, it's worth pulling pulling on that thread a little bit further yeah. because it was um, uh, frequency of new users using the hashtag was mm. another uh, component of the trending right. algorithm. Right. So if you look at this image, basically what's happening is, um, you know, it's there are large numbers of people, <coughs> but they're the same people. Right. The rate of new new users adding right. themselves to the group of folks right. 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 using the the OWS hashtags. Um, isn't increasing as quickly as some of the others. Um, but what that means then, so after this article comes out and it circulates pretty widely right. uh, among you know, activists involved <coughs> in Occupy, um, people say, oh, okay, and they modify the activist practices right. and they say what we need to do is um, basically everybody pick a new hashtag and we're all going to start you know, doing it at a certain time. Right, so activist practice shifts from we have to build the uh, right. mass, you know, the number of people using the, uh, this particular hashtag over the long over the length of the movement right. to we have to change up the hashtag every weekend basically. Right. Right. Um, so people figure out how to how to gain in these these systems. Yeah. Um, I wonder if um, as you were as you were talking about sort of the the response the answer to you in terms of the response where does the responsibility lie? Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, I, I I don't know if this is something that exists but I've I've often thought recently in this in this conversation that yeah. we're having a lot um, about will we see a new layer of uh, user interface design that allows mm. people to tweak or modify what they're seeing in terms of the trend. So if what I really want to see is, you know, just volume, you know, I'll select that. If what I want to see is right. uh, more complex or, you know, people from unconnected networks. Um, if I was a, if I was a trend uh, so you know, a trend developer in a social media site, I would probably start developing some of those types of features. And I wonder if that's already happening. If that's something you're seeing, and yeah. does it really? <clears throat> and does that really work, or does mm. it just displace a little bit further right. uh, the argument? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, there there are a couple of things that come to mind. So you know, Reddit offers you sort of like five different algorithms. That's a kind of right five lenses. Um, there are these, uh, you know, like trendistic, and there are other ones like that that sort of um, draw much more data and give you sort of visualizations of it and give you more ability to um, to parse that information. Um, so, you know, so one possible. I don't want to. I don't want to predict, right? But so one possibility is that um, there's a kind of cap on who's interested and skilled and and sort of versatile enough to want to do that, right? So right now, you'd have to go to Trendistic. You'd have to sort of know why you do that. It doesn't have a nice, clean interface. you got to kind of like get in there. So there's a bit of a sort of tinker expertise problem. Um, but, you know, it, they could work on that, right? They could sort of imagine a kind of, you know, overlay that lets you do that. Um, one possibility is that those would get bought up, <laughs> right? So as soon as that got good, Twitter would buy that and just sort of like incorporate it. Um, Without guessing, I, mean, I think it's a really interesting question about whether we. I think the first question is whether we even expect that to be manipulable, right? So when we look at, God, where did I put the 
just the old trends, right? Um, when we look at this kind of, uh, you know, eight words, right? When we look at, you know, this list, um, do we even, do, is there any, like, um, deep sense that I should have control over this, right? Um, there is this mechanism where you can change it, um, but do, do we even have a vocabulary that says this is just one way to have represented what's going on, and there are others that are also calculational, that are also based on the activity, but have different criteria and thresholds. So it might be that as we grow savvier with the way that this is sort of channeling activity, one of the things we would do is say there should be more uh, choice and more sort of control over that. Um, and this all depends on the assumption that sort of the paper is based on that I don't know if it's true of this being a particularly relevant feature of people's activity. It may be that like even if you use trends, if that registers to some degree, mostly what you're you know what's what's sort of the meat of the matter is what's showing up on your feed. Um, and so the the call to have some you know adjustable trends is not super strong. Uh, we see it more in Reddit, but that's a community that's like is much more sort of invested in how its own structure structures their activity. Um, would it matter? I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, I'd, I'd like to think that that would be one thing we could call for is some kind of like um, knob twiddling over the weight, if only because it would highlight that those features matter, right? I think of it more as like, I don't know if there's some um, perfect calibration, and I don't know if like my call is that everyone should have the ability, you know, the freedom to recalibrate. Um, but it's a, that, that would be revealing of the very first step, which is that these choices matter quite a bit. Um, I think just revealing the fact that it's cluster-based and time-based and new user-based is really helpful. Um, there is this sort of cat and mouse thing where you then like, or the activists like, there's a lay theory about what that must mean, and then you should create a new hashtag every week, and that may or may not matter, and then Twitter may adjust itself in response. So it's a very strange game where all the pieces are, are movable in that relationship. Yeah. Hey, it's awesome. Thanks for the talk. It's sure. Really, really enjoyable. I love also the thing you had some of the links back to like your politics and platforms as well. Um, thinking about the kind of ubiquity of trending that you sort of talked about, yeah. it kind of seems as if like the circulation of ideas and culture is becoming even more of a volume business than it was before. And I'm just wondering, um, what evidence do you see of like counter movements? So I think of like. Um, Forgotify, which was a site started to play all of the songs that have never been played on, on Spotify. Nice. And Ethan Zuckerman in Center for Civic Media talks a lot about trying to design for you know things that are deliberately against the trend, for like unexpected interactions, mm-hmm. you know, interactions between people who don't agree, right. whose, whose ideas don't trend together. Right. Uh, right. I wonder if you've seen any more evidence of that. If you think that's something you can design for, or is it just a sort of um, borderland kind of resistance activity. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've spent more time looking at people who are being strategic about these mechanisms, um, which is a little different than sort of defying them or coming up with an alternative. Um, I think it's really, you know, the Spotify one is really interesting, right? So should we, should we gather up those poor soul songs that have never been played uh, and create a mechanism to play that? That was a really clever and interesting uh, aspect. There was a band recently, I'm totally blanking on the name, that put an album on Spotify that was completely silent and told their fans that if they played it all night, uh, the town that delivered the most money would get a free concert from them. 
So you could just put on their, their, their silent album and just play it on repeat, and they would get the Spotify dollars, which is kind of interesting. That's a little bit different. That's gaming the sort of economics of that place. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, if we think about I mean, this is where kind of my category of trending gets a little tricky because the kind of sales ranky stuff, you could say, well, all the sort of long tail, all the sort of you know, hay that was made about long tail, all the mechanism to go find those little niche objects was a response to uh, you know, the tendency for the popular to remain popular. Um, if we think about trending as this thing of like a measure of activity that depends on these um, particular notions about who, you know, cl- clusters of people, if we take that as a piece. Um, sorry, and there's another one. So like, you know, the challenge to personalize news of like maybe random, maybe, you know, showing you a random headline, just putting that in. So, so how you might respond to a kind of um, either the cluster-specific or cluster, cross-cluster emphasis of Twitter trends or the emphasis on surge, right? Um, finding a filter, maybe it's something like Sasha was talking about, about finding a way to highlight things that have a low burn, right? Highlight things that are cluster-specific. I, I think, it's, I, I think the, the cluster cross versus cluster-specific is really striking to me um, because it's precisely, you know, I can imagine someone making a very different decision about what that algorithm should do and it also being reasonable according to a set of criteria about what you should deliver people who don't know the thing yet but might want to. Um, so the idea that, that a group of people that you're not part of has intensely latched onto a topic, you know, in a different notion of public, not a Habermasian one, but a kind of agonistic where there's lots of groups and they care intensely about different things and you should want to encounter them instead of some bracketed off center public um, that that's, it has a very different philosophy behind it. So you can imagine someone sort of trying to design that. I don't know that I've seen one that I could sort of point to, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm interested if uh, you've had any, uh, if you've been looking uh, closely at newsroom mm-hmm. and the impact of uh, algorithms in the newsroom itself, mm-hmm. and also uh, the impact of these algorithms on the creation of the pages for Google News and so on and so forth. Right. And then also the third is just the impact on people who don't use social media. Right, right. Um, all really relevant topics. Uh, I'll pass on two of them. So I haven't looked at the newsroom in particular. Um, uh, Pablo Bachkowski has written some really interesting stuff about how newsrooms function right now. Partly, uh, his newest book is really interested about how newspapers will desperately watch what their other sites are reporting and then quickly report them. Um, so you can imagine a similar thing where, where I mean, you know, CNN like says, oh, here's what's trending on, on Twitter, but a kind of a much more ingrained question about um, whether these other mechanisms that are identifying topics of interest are then taken by journalists as skeptical or as provocative or, you know, drive questions. Um, uh, and the third one, sort of uh, people not on social media, um, I don't know that I have something specific to say about that. The second one about um, how pages are generated I think is quite interesting. So at one point early on I saw, a, a, this was back in 2008, YouTube made an announcement that said that they were going to um, algorithmically demote suggestive videos. So if it's pornographic, it's off. That's just done. But if it's suggestive, but somehow passes the litmus test of this is, can belong on YouTube, they would algorithmically demote them from lists like most favorited, most viewed. And at first I read that and I was like, 
that's a weird way to keep people away from them. Like they're still there, and you could post them in your blog, and you're hosting them, but somehow like only this way where it shows up on the favorited, it's going to drop off. Like you're you're sweeping up in a very small corner of of your sort of YouTube world. Uh, until I realized that when a new user arrives at YouTube, that front page is populated by those lists. So if you go back to YouTube, it's about your own activity and what you've you know what channels you followed and what have you. It tries to tailor it. But if you're a new user, an unsigned in user. The best they can go is like, this is popular, this is hot, this has been watched a lot. And if that were all jiggly bikini videos, that doesn't help YouTube. Right? So um, the way that uh, these algorithms aren't just showing up here where it's like, these would be things for you, go ahead and click them, but become the built-in mechanisms to produce content, right? to produce a presentable page, or to choose a headline, or to whatever. Um, these algorithms serve a lot of purposes to organize information for us, but also for the platform. For other purposes, so I think that's a place where these kind of feedback loops are really interesting, um, and you wouldn't necessarily know from a user position necessarily, right? So I'm curious if you, if you're familiar with or have done any thinking about the fate of Sunlink, which mm. was a um, algorithmic news summarization right. startup that basically just used commercially available technology, but was then bought up by Yahoo okay. and became Yahoo News Digest. Okay is a twice-daily um, set of stories generated sort of part by editors, human editors, and part by mm. you know, summarization technology. But it's the same for everyone, all users in the United States. Okay. And it's been read by some commentators as this sort of brave stand against personalization. Okay. But it also sort of seems like just remaking the newspaper. Right. Because we have that sort of a form already. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've seen, you know, other situations mm. of people, you know, maybe you know, moving against this. You, you sort of put it as information overload. Maybe that's how <coughs> yeah. how answer. But yeah. Is there something going on there where we can't handle this, so we you know, we're trying to slice it in a different way? Yeah. I mean, you know, the first thing I think about is like if you go to. Um, you know, a front page news website or a, you know, a sort of news um, aggregation site. There, there's usually like nine or ten ways that it's trying to deliver content up, right? So um, it's the classic thing of like, what do you put on the top of the page in, in big letters? It's the um, most viewed, it's the, uh, you know, personalized and tailored, it's the um, promoted and, and uh, you know, there's like, if, if you think about it as like, if you think about each sort of quadrant of that page as yet another way to say, here's what might be relevant to you in this moment, or here's what I desperately hope you'll click on and stay here and not go read something else. Um, each one of them has a kind of um, a logic that weighs these criteria, that weighs personalization based on your activity there, personalization based on your activity across all sorts of sites, personalization based on you and people like you, uh, personalization by your region, um, sort of like your network's publicly surging topics, your community's publicly surging topics, the things that our advertising partners really would like to have in there, but ranked in order that it seems to, you know. Um, so each one of them has a, a calculus about to what degree it's tailoring, promoting, gathering, curating. Um, and, and I think it'd be interesting to think of each one as having kind of like a DNA where each of those is kind of a part of the story. Um, so, so I, you know, I don't know if I want to tell a story that's kind of like it's a battle of personalization versus the 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 whole, right? The whole audience, the whole nation, because um, there's actually a lot of ways to slice that. And if you think about 
um, you know, your Sunday newspaper, it's slicing it about seven different ways too, right? So it's the front page section, it's sections that they do differently by borough, it's the things they got from the AP, it's the international section, it's, you know, there's lots of ways where it's like the selection here was editorial, was based on notions of the audience, but did that calculus differently and split that audience differently and tried to sort of figure out the sweet spot of putting those together. Um, so, so the kind of personalization versus not was one way for us to react to, like it going in a very strong direction. But I think now we have to think about um, that each of these platforms is offering up about, about nine different ways to do it, and each one of them has a different notion of why you should want to read something. And, who, and again, this question of legibility, who you might then assume that represents. And how you might be wrong, but, but read it that way anyway. Right? So not know how that was come up with, but then somehow say, that's Boston, right? or that's the US, or that's now-ish, public-ish, Twitter-ish. Right? Um, I think that's really interesting. And it's a, there's, a, there's, a mis- there's a complex calculation in the production. There's a complex calculation in the assumption. They don't match up necessarily, and they both matter. to me that the, the test of these algorithms, uh, fundamentally for the user and for the producer, is the profit in it. And if you look at the most uh, tracked transactions, it's the stock market. A lot of these uh, sites is like uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange. It's not really, we don't care about it. But, uh, but I'm wondering, you know, have you looked at the uh, things that have been tracked a long time mm. by lots of algorithms in the stock market would be a case in point as as uh, maybe a predictor of how a lot of this stuff is going to be long. Hmm. Okay, so what you're saying is take something that's historically been treated this way for much longer and see if there's a story to be told about where it went over time that we're sort of just at the beginning chapter of? I see. Yeah. Because a lot of these are just very <clears throat> low-value transactions. Yeah. They're just tracking what people say. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about tracking the stock market. I think in some ways trying to point to Gallup and, and you know, survey research is a way to do that, right? So if, if the worries about Gallup, um, if we could track the way that that became established, the kind of hesitations people had, the, the, the debates about effect versus value, the debates about bias versus neutrality, um, uh, the, the, the balance of kind of public and commercial imperatives, I think that tells us a story that we can see uh, echoes of in, a, in, this, you know, in this space with important differences, right, in terms of how easy it is to collect the data, how platform-specific. My point is that, like, the reason polling got so uh, <clears throat> was that uh, it, people got elected by using it, mm-hmm. and people made money by using it, you know, and that's the way this happens. Maybe. I, I mean, I, I agree to a degree, though I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that political polling has to do is um, explain how it isn't explanatory, right? So, you know, Nate Silver spends a lot of time saying, uh, here's what I think is going to happen. And he spends a lot of time saying, now understand that this is a a kind of measure that won't tell you who's going to win. It's just going to tell you what I think the odds are if someone's going to win. Sometimes they then get to crow and say, see, I was right. And, you know, a percentage point difference in two states. And he could have said, see, there was a 48% chance that that was going to happen, so I was right also, right? Um, so there's a kind of, it, it depends incredibly on whether it can be treated as reliable knowledge, but not, not exclusively so, right? Um, because polling continues even though it has vagaries. 
So I think that both things have to be part of the story. It's sort of like part of it has to be, does this serve a purpose? Is it a purpose Twitter recognizes? Is it a purpose that has a dollar sign somewhere at the bottom, right, that users find valuable or advertisers find valuable or is so cheap to do that it doesn't matter if, it's, if they find it valuable? I think that's a po totally part of the story. Um, but it doesn't take them out of the game of once they do it, they then are called upon for having done so. It does um, re-channel activity in some way um, that then you know, they're going to care about quite a bit. If it re-channels BuzzFeed and then BuzzFeed regames, then they have to redo. Like, they, they can't just do it for cheap and say, that's another bell and whistle, right? Because it then becomes part of the interface. It becomes part of what Twitter's understood to do and part of the actual mechanism. So I think it's both, right? Like, the, the financials, both the actual financials and the perceived financials are a huge part of the story, but they don't finish the story, right? Because there's a lot of ways to imagine that you're having value and there's a lot of things you have to deal with, even if you're getting value, that are consequential. So I, it's, I, I want both questions to be in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of my classmates this morning sent me an article about a company called Guild, which okay. is basically um, developed an algorithm that they claim is a more merit-based way for um, tech companies to hire programmers and coders okay. in their companies. And, so in this article, the CEO was talking about how uh, she hoped that this would <coughs> bypass a lot of the known and well-documented social biases and the hiring right. practices of companies in right. this area. Right. So I'm curious first, just generally, what your skepticism or optimism is about this idea of intentionally creating algorithms right. for justice or fairness. Right. And if, if there is room for optimism there, what would a process look like mm -hmm. for creating al algorithms in that way? Yeah. And then if we could create them, how do we deal with this issue of like transparency? So if we could come up with an algorithm that we thought truly like let the best people rise to the top, would that be something we'd have to keep secret, or would mm. in like the very nature of it need to let the public think? Yeah, well, it's a great it's a great question, and, and I think part of this thing of like all these places we're seeing um, algorithms being offered in to stand in for human judgments, right? Um, I mean, I think I have a couple gut reactions. One is like. Um, People who hire people have already had algorithms to do it. It's not a computational algorithm, right? It's a um, a set of professional guidelines, and it's a checklist, and it's you know what's if you were a tree, what would you be, right? It's all these sort of mechanisms that are supposed to sort. Um, and in, a lot of times, they stood in as um, this is a way for me to not let my bias get to me, right? I have to ask these 19 questions, or I have to you know put this in front of three people so I don't go like they seemed the funnest, or they seemed the hottest, or they seemed whatever, right? Um, so, so there was already a mechanism where the balance of human acumen, right, like I can actually perceive someone who I think is going to be good at this, and that's weighted with all sorts of subjective biases. Both you could be incorrect, both those things are not always predictable, and all sorts of other biases that aren't the right criteria. So what do we do about that, right? We, we keep honing that algorithm. Um, we create policy mechanisms to guard against its worst abuses like discrimination lawsuits. Um, uh, and, and we're left with this weird calculus of this is in the hands of human beings. Um, there are procedures that are taken up, sometimes failed to be taken up, right? They're supposed to be done, but they're not done. There are redress that are imperfect. Um, and, uh, and we try to squeeze the benefit of human acumen and the benefit of some sort of like impartial mechanism, uh, and it's not perfect. So then if we say, okay, well, now we've got the guild algorithm that's going to sort of sort fairly, um, 
I think we just have to ask the same questions, right? So, um, and they're displaced a little bit, right? So there's both the kind of, just the same way I was like, well, I use the 19-point test, so I'm fine. Both the ways that that can both be helpful and cover, then I use the algorithm can sort of do the same thing. Um, what data went into it, right? So that question of like, well, I looked at SAT scores, that could be both really impartial and really atrocious, depending on what you think of SAT scores, right? Um, I looked at, you know, I asked recommenders to rate them on a 10-point scale. Well, then, like, there's still questions about 10-point scales. There's questions about gaming. There's questions about inflation, right? Um, which ones did you weigh differently? Did you put them in categories? Like, well, this one's a CEO and this one's a janitor, so this one weighs more. Like, how much? Um, so the, the value judgments get inscribed into the tool, uh, so we have to have a, you know, I think the hardest part is um, we're not very good right now at asking about the way values get inscribed in algorithms, right? Some people recognize it in all sorts of ways, but we don't have a vocabulary for it outside of those specific environments. And I think that's what a lot of scholars who are thinking about this are trying to do. It's, it's not, oh, there are values. That's true, but, I mean, that's sort of the first observation. But it's more like, do we have a vocabulary for them? Do we recognize how they get lost in that, uh, in that space, how they come up clean because they look impartial because they're kind of an arm's length from, hmm, I like the cut of your jib, right? Um, so the, the, the way that that provides a distance is this, its own additional thing. But I think we've already had a way to say there's going to be human judgment, there's going to be procedures, there's some sort of weird give and take. The procedures have human judgments. We use and forego the procedures all the time, and we have to have some mechanism for someone to say this was done unfairly, but we don't have a great way to prove that. Um, I think all of those things will have to come into place around these algorithmic mechanisms. Um, and they're just going to be, it's going to be a different orientation about how they come together. So I'm optimistic, but I'm optimistic in the sense that, like, you should have both elements always. You should have human acumen and procedure and some fair equation of the two, but I don't know that we've gotten it. And we're weighing in on the procedure really heavily right now. We're looking to it to solve a lot of problems. Um, I'm curious to know how you in an ideal situation um, journalists actually covering these issues so yeah. like you're talking about the Gallup polls beginning from the front page yeah. but then also influencing the way that we think about polls creating sort of like horse race journalism and then more recently you have Nate Silver kind of come in and say blah 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 um, Nick Diacopoulos at Columbia has a really good paper about um, reporters reverse engineering accountability yeah that is one option. We've obviously have a lot of cooking brought them up, but there's probably diverse engineering but even above those, the likelihood that like most journalists are ever gonna be able to do that. Right. I don't right. know. Um, but then there's also the issue of transparency, how yes, if Twitter reveals too much you can gain the system and it's right. gonna cause problems for them, but what's the responsibility of the reporter to ignore that yeah. that potential commercial issue Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And I didn't get to your transparency question, so I'll I'll do it here. Um, yeah, so that's right. So there's the call, the Nick's call of like, journalists are going to have to learn how to reverse engineer algorithms. Um, not the algorithm itself, but from the results, try to figure out, you know, choices and biases. That's, that's one way to do it. Um, I think that I put a lot of weight, this is my answer to you, um, about these things come up when they seem unjust or when they seem questionable. So I just got a call from a reporter the other day from the Boston Globe, and it was like, Facebook does this kind of, you know, related search. If you click on the article from the Boston Globe, when you come back to Facebook, there'll be kind of three articles. They're like, you might have liked, blah, 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 right? Um, and in my experience, it had always been the same source. It was like I clicked on Gizmodo, and then three more articles from Gizmodo came up. 
Yeah, his experience was he had clicked on something about Michelle Obama from the AP, and when he came back, the three articles were like, one was like, she's having an affair with so-and-so, another was like, you know, they were all these kind of atrocious, and when he clicked through, they were very disreputable, and he was sort of outraged. It was like, Facebook is telling us this is stuff we should trust. How could, how could they give us this atrocious stuff, right? Um, and on the one hand, I was kind of like, well, you know, that's not what they're claiming, and I was sort of doing my, like, algorithms are complicated position, but I'm glad he was sort of calling on them, and when he called them, they were like, this is the algorithm, we make no promises. Um, so I think those moments are places where journalists can say, I don't know what got us there, but I'm out, you know, it's troublesome that this thing happened, and now I'm going to go investigate. Whether that investigation is reverse engineering, or whether that investigation is calling upon a Facebook or Twitter to speak to something, those are both avenues. Oh, the, they Maybe. I think it's, I feel like it's changing. I feel like between journalists who are gaining that technical expertise or um, an increasing sense that these algorithms are consequential and so they won't just take the answer even though they can't challenge it on a technical level. Um, they can at least voice those who are outraged or who are, you know, there's like some room to do that. These are all imperfect. I mean, these are all um, uh, imperfect answers to how to ferret out the truth. But I mean, journalists have always faced uh, things that are very difficult to ferret out. Um, the transparency, you know, the, the, another one is sort of like call upon these sites to be transparent about what they're doing. And obviously the sites say, we, we can't do that, right? Because we're just giving, you know, this is now spammers will know what to do and people who just want to get their brand up on this thing, which is funny because then they turn to the brands and they're like, pay us a bunch of money and we'll help you do this. Um, but, but there is a certain logic to, you know, a kind of secret sauce argument. Um, add to that, it's not clear... <laughs> On some of these, it's not clear that Google can actually explain their algorithm anymore. It's, you know, maybe Twitter could do it with trends, but um, you know, there, there are now so many points that the search engine is weighing, um, and it's been changed you know, in an aggregational way. Like We've tweaked it and added it and we've put on this thing. And it's not like there's someone who's like, no, I will explain the many, many points, and here's why this result came out. It's actually very difficult for them to do. Um, there could be a transparency, I would imagine, where it's like, a transparency of value criteria. So say what you think you were doing, right? And Twitter does that kind of in this um, to trend or not to trend article where they're like, okay, it's this, time decay. They can't say exactly when, but like time matters, velocity matters, clusters matter, new users matter, new tweets. You know, they can say those things. Um, and then there's room to say the, the public that you're producing or the philosophy of politics that you're basing on has certain implications, right? So there can be, there could be a transparency of kind of um, purpose that isn't the same as transparency of code, maybe. But there's a lot of slippage between those things too. Yeah, come in. But don't you think that as, as more and more journalism moves online, it relies on things like reputation economies and recommendations <coughs> and things like that? Their their kind of their interests align more and more with yeah. like Facebook and Twitter. There's less and less interest in kind of poking behind those curtains. Uh, well, okay, that's interesting. You went somewhere different. So, so I can imagine that, right? There's sort of like, boy, if, you know, if Twitter doesn't like me, I'm out, <laughs> right? Um, or why would I muck with this system? I think you might see the opposite, too, which is like a, f a fascination with that system, too. So you might see both effects. Um, I, I think we're seeing two things with journalists that, that are a little promising to the question that you asked. One is... Um, 
a, you know, a generation of people who you know, are sort of, I'm not saying digital natives, but people who have spent a lot of time with these systems and are sort of aware of the, of the, of the peculiarities. Um, and even if they're not technically savvy, they can't go read the code, they're sort of um, instrumentally savvy, right? They get that they're sort of, you can navigate these things. Um, and so an ability to ask questions based on that expertise, even though it's not programming expertise, and they don't have access to the code. The other is that you see a lot of journalists um, and journalistic organizations teaming up with um, programmers and hackers. You see a lot of these sort of um, efforts to put these together. Those efforts themselves are curious and problematic. Seth Lewis has written a lot about this, about you know hacks and hackers groups, hacks like I'm a hack journalist and hackers, these efforts put them together and the way that that tends to be like, well, the journalist says, I need this, and they go program something. And it's not really a collaboration. But there are at least efforts to say, to know how to do this, we're going to have to put those expertise together somehow. So, so yes, there might be a like, uh, you know, like either I depend on this so I'm not going to muck with it or it's the, it's the water I swim in, I can't even see it anymore. But there could also be an increasing ability and interest to say, what are you up to? And I think some of the outbursts when, uh, so BuzzFeed, but especially Upworthy, there was this big moment where people were like, oh my god, Upworthy was getting all popular, and they all of a sudden dropped off, and it must have been that Facebook throttled them down. Um, and it turned out that it was much more complicated, that Upworthy had a surge, and it was probably coming down anyway, but Facebook had made some adjustments. But the journalists were like, Facebook, you can't do that. You can't just like pull a lever, and suddenly like, my paper disappears, or every paper like me. So, so there is a place where they, their business interests and their professional interest could get, um, you know, sort of kicked in the teeth by Facebook's maneuvers, <laughs> and that might just as easily draw some some ire and some investigation. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, please. Yeah, I wanted to come back to uh, when we were talking about guild and the uh, this uh, programmer. Who, yeah. this programmer who was hired. Um, that uh, I remember reading that the way he was hired was because he was working on a code base that was forked a lot of times. Okay. So that it was his network that did it. It wasn't like they weren't analyzing the code itself. They were analyzing who was downloading his code. And okay. he just wrote something that was convenient for a lot of people to use, and it wasn't actually good code. Or okay. So I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I, I feel like it's all these algorithms, and, and especially these clusters of trends, they're all about context rather than content. Yeah. Yeah. that uh, they're about your network. They're, it's no longer about who you are. It's not like I'm a male age 25 to 40. It's like I know these 300 people and right, they know right. these 500 people. Right. Um, and I'm wondering if that is sort of increasing our sense of public if we're mm. going on these sites and searching and we're knowing, oh, people like me are searching like searching that there are people who like the same things right. that I like are searching. Right. And I'm also wondering if that seems more... Um, <coughs> more objective than yeah. some, somebody making a value judgment about who you are and saying, oh, I'm not a typical 25 to 40 male. So, right. Uh, so you're wrong about this. But you can't say, oh, I don't actually like these 300 friends I have. Right. Yeah, I think that's really, I, I like the word that you said in there, which was proxy, right? Because as soon as you, you know, all of these are sort of proxies. They're approximations of what we can know about an individual or groups that then we can tell back. And, and there's all sorts of benefits and problems with proxies, right? They tell us something, but they they had to change, right? They had to sort of lose detail, lose context. Um, but the proxy that says, you know, you're 25 to 40 and white as a proxy to know you is a proxy as well, and it's a problematic one as well. Um, so I think we're always um, bristling, you know, benefiting from and bristling against these proxies that tell us who we are and tell us who they are. Um, 
so there's two questions. One is the inevitable problem of proxies. What do you lose? Who, who gains? Have you, have you so transformed the complex thing by making the snapshot that it's sort of lost its value? But then there's other thing about what the nature of the proxy is, right? So a demographic proxy that says, if I know your race and age, I can know enough about you that I can market to you. And now a, if I know your 300 links and where you spend activity, I can know you and market to you. Um, that those are different proxies. And they, they, um, what they care to approximate and what they take as telling, right? So here I'm talking about proxies of publics, not proxies of individuals. Um, but I think that the issue is the same, right? So it's both that it's being proxied at all um, and the criteria by which it's proxied and what is claimed to be known and said about that. Yeah. Thanks so much. I'm happy to hang out a bit so if people have, didn't get questions answered. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah.